Hi, I'm E.B. Smith. I'm Adai Moon. And you are listening to Old Heads. A deep dive into the struggle from behind the theater curtain. So how are you today, Adai? Man, I'm all right. The coffee's kicked in, so I'm feeling good. All right. We're a step ahead <laughs> from usual, you know, got the caffeine flowing. The caffeine's flowing. We're going to talk about 1939 at the Stratford Festival today. Mm-hmm. It's a, another installment of Old Heads House Notes. Oh my God, this play blew me away. Dude, I came in knowing that this was going to be a, a play about residential schools and sort of bringing in the little bit of information that I know about residential schools and mainly as they relate to the United States and, and that horrible right. history. But I was kind of expecting one thing. And then as I'm watching the play, I'm getting something that that's a comedy, essentially, almost situational. And then one of the most amazing terms that I've ever experienced in a production in quite a while. So it was very much a roller coaster, a stylistic and emotional roller coaster ride that I did not anticipate going in. It really, it really was. So, so as a little context from the festival website, uh, synopsis of the play, anticipating a visit by King George the sixth an English teacher at a fictional residential school in Northern Ontario enlists her students in a production of All's Well That Ends Well, but her rigid ideas of how Shakespeare should be performed and challenged as her Indigenous students start finding parallels between themselves and the characters in the play, and, far from letting themselves be defined by colonial expectations, set out to make Shakespeare's bittersweet comedy defiantly their own. Wow. All's well that ends well, yet again. (laughs) (laughs) Yet again. (laughs) This piece of theater gave so much. I mean, as an actor, (laughs) as an actor, I'm watching these teachers at this residential school trying to kind of whitewash (laughs) the performances in this play, which is something that's not unusual or, or, or foreign to any actor of color, I would imagine, particularly right. those that have worked in classical spaces. But the way that everything came together, I mean, Joanna used set design with those chalkboards. Oh, the chalkboards. Where people would write or draw something and then someone else would come by and just erase it. I mean, it was such a, it was yeah. just such a tangible, understandable image of that erasure, of that yeah. silencing, you know, that censorship. That and I think Johnny talked about it in the talkback, or, or or like a little conversation afterwards. Can't remember if that was originally in the text or if it's something that she added as a directorial framing device. But Christ, as a framing device, mm-hmm. it was absolutely brilliant. It was. And the fact that, you know, you, you see these young indigenous people writing these things on this chalkboard, like in the transitions, and these things are erased by the white teachers. Yeah. And then, of course, the wonderful payoff at the end when they write things in this traditional glyph and they can't be erased. That's right. I mean, it was a gorgeous storytelling device that was set up, you know, whether or not it was texted or just a brilliant directorial move move on Johnny's part to come up with it. It was it was exquisite. Yeah. Even when I was having some personal tonal issues with the top of the play, that framing device set me up for something that I knew was going to be special and and, and unique. So 
Yeah, and that, I, I will say too that reflection space adjacent to the performance space was extraordinary. I am a huge fan of interdisciplinary work. I yes. love it when we can combine disciplines, when we can bring visual artists together with the artists together with dance and music, and like let's just make this an entire all-encompassing experience. I'm not sure why we're so segmented across all of these various industries, right? But I think this this piece really did a lovely job of that. There was an art installation next door that told mm -hmm. a story of residents schools. Tom Wilson's Fading Memories of Home. Exquisite installation piece. Yeah. And there were rows of school desks set up and it was it was really evocative. And then adjacent to that was a circle of chairs set up for reflection and discussion after the piece or during the piece. It was open during intermission too. Um, but to have that room available and that space available to have a facilitated conversation was just lovely. And it wasn't a talk back. It was really just a conversation. And it allowed people, I think, to to start to work through what they were, were experiencing. I think it's I think that is useful in any any production. <laughs> it doesn't have to be heavy or culturally specific or anything. I am all for facilitated discussions are so necessary and so powerful when done well, yeah. both the facilitated discussion and the companion installation piece were just like absolutely gorgeous and exquisite and, and really added another layer to the storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. So kudos to both of the dramaturgs who were a part of shaping and developing that process. Yeah, I think apart from that for me too, this was just a really good play. Yeah, it was. It just, it was simple and it worked. Like you said, it was, it was funny and light. And then it would just drop these bombs. Yeah. And they weren't grotesque. You know, they weren't the kind of thing that like yeah. blows you away. I mean, they really just hit. Yeah. And, you know, it's that feeling of just sort of that light impact that then just spreads through you. For me, it really enca encapsulated that pace and quality of long lasting, ongoing traumatic experience. Right. right? It, because it's not a cataclysm. It's just a slow kind of rot. And you also get the sense, like, you know, even in the resolution of the play, where all the students leave the school and kind of go their separate ways, you don't get a sense that, that things are resolved, mm -hmm. that their futures are going to be easy. Again, initially, I was having some issues with, with the tone, and it's my own bias, you know, expecting it to be serious because it's about residential mm -hmm. schools and it's kind of a comedy. Yeah. But then as I'm watching it, and especially at, in the discussion afterwards, I realized, I'm like, okay, this is how you let an audience who doesn't know this culture or experience in. Right. You trick them by making it a comedy. <laughs> well, you don't trick them, but you, you you open up that space. But the comedy is integral to the experience because the comedy is how you survive that. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you look at how those characters navigate that world, first of all, they need to be funny for each other. Otherwise, you know, mm -hmm. there's no joy in life. Like, that's, right. that's part of the survival, I think, you see. But it's also part of the sort of trauma bonding of that place. What was clearly articulated is, is that the comedy was a means of resistance. Right. I just think for me as an audience person, that didn't necessarily click initially. Yeah. And it took a minute for me to, yeah. to pick up on that thread. Yeah, because I don't because I really don't think that the comedy was there for the benefit of white audience members watching it or people that didn't know about residential schools watching. It. I think it helped. It, it did. But I think that was a consequence. I don't think that was the intention. Yeah. 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 I don't think it was there in order to draw people in. I think it was there to say, hey, you know, right. this is day-to-day -day life under these conditions. Right. 
What I also appreciate, so the moment in the story where Kathleen McLean, who was wonderful as a character, Susan, reveals that she's been being abused by this professor the entire time, or this teacher at the school the entire time, and the Evelyn character is healing her with traditional medicine, to me was like one of the major turns in the play, where you sort of realize that, you know, even though these characters, as we're seeing them on stage, they're using their joy and, and humor and their passion, their growing passion about Shakespeare to hide these kind of tragedies or or to deal with mm-hmm. these tragedies that are happening offstage to the characters. Yeah. Amazing performances, but some really amazing writing by the two writers to be able to communicate that. Yeah. You know, that the the conversation around Shakespeare was interesting too for me. This whole idea of trying to of trying to sort of indigenize Shakespeare. But then, I mean, the classroom scene where they deconstruct all's well as the is. I was just like, y'all. So by that point, I was fully on board. Yeah, and I was just like, okay, yeah, this is beautiful. Yeah. Like that scene was wonderful. It was, but but when you look at the dynamic of trying to of trying to sort of earnestly indigenize Shakespeare or shift the cultural mm-hmm. lens of Shakespeare, but then people deliver costumes that are like made out of toys and look could have gotten a spirit of Halloween store. There was a Thanksgiving <laughs> sale at Walmart, so we're gonna get these costumes. <laughs> And I mean, it was at one point hilarious, and at the same time, it was devastating. It was like, but their their intention was actually to present something cultural. But 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 the thing is, devastating, but so spot on. Yes, absolutely. Like real. it's like, yes, of course, this is what they would yeah. do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because because this is their understanding of this culture. As, as you've said many times, whitey gonna white. It was like the ladies' auxiliary that they had hired to sew the costumes, and so they they were just gonna they were gonna sew the costumes <laughs> as they imagined these costumes to be, right? Like, and they were well-meaning and sweet to support the children. <laughs> That's right. But y'all, we're just trying to help. And, and I loved the students' reactions mm-hmm. <laughs> to the costumes. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is this? What are we gonna do with this? Because it. it it was, I mean, to me, a wonderful and hilarious commentary, not just on cultural appropriation, but 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 just the real true lack of understanding when it comes to cultural difference. Right. And the importance of what those differences actually are. You could see the conversation where someone said, Can you sell this costume? And they go, Oh yeah, fun costume for a play. When what we're really asking for is a spiritual object. <laughs> right. A, a spiritual object that has ritual significance. That's right. Which also brings me to like, literally, this rarely happens for me in a play. And it also happened in moments of Death and the King's Horseman as well. As an artist, very much grounded in like African diasporic performance traditions. I always love it when a narrative slips into ritual and it's totally unexpected. And so when these actors and these characters, but it's the character and the actors are performing this ritual where they're dancing in a circle. Mm -hmm. And you literally felt, like I felt, spirits in the room. I felt something being conjured in that space. I felt this merging between the actors and the characters that they're playing. And that kind of like transcendental, magical, however you want to describe it, is so rare Mm -hmm. in a theater production. And so I was literally moved to tears in that moment. Yeah. So powerful. It was. I want to see that play again. I want to see this play done a lot. It really does bring a fresh understanding of what that was, of what that experience was. But I think it also 
it also takes it beyond the kind of academic or documentary and really puts it into the experiential. And for me, that was so crucial. The only thing I could compare it to sort of from my own cultural background and from a piece of work that really spoke to that would be, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Jacob the Liar with Robin Williams, but this movie really, it, it really showed the sort of resilient side of facing certain extermination. Mm -hmm. It was a sort of touching and beautiful movie until it was devastating. Right. And I think, I, I think mm -hmm. it really helped to understand not just what happened, but the experience of how it happened of what, you know, what, what it is to survive it as, as much as you can. And so I think there's a lot of value in that. You know, I, when, when we were having all these conversations about race in 2020 and people kept asking me like, what do I need to read? <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, read how to be an anti-racist and how, and read the new Jim Crow and read, you know, all these books about the sort of document of how this happens and what happens. But I think even more than that is understanding not just how black people die, but how black people live and dream. Oh, of course, like one of the challenges of any kind of cultural work or like EDI work it is this idea of not using trauma as a teaching tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, really dealing with the human beings who are a part of this culture that's different than yours and telling as full stories you know, as you can about them, but not, but, you know, it's like none of us are, are defined by our trauma. Right. That's right. And and I think that's what this played well. And I'm, I also really appreciate hearing Jannie talk about the process of discussing with residential school survivors during the dramaturgy of the piece, how, how to best present this, right? How do we make sure we tell this story the right way? Mm -hmm. I think the rigor that went into the making of this, this piece was really important and it, and it shone through throughout the performance. I mean, it was really, it was really well crafted and responsibly crafted. Yeah, and I really got that sense. And again, you know, I'm, I'm always gonna shout out dramaturgs. Shout out to uh, Jessica Carmichael and Saruja Mall. Is that am I pronouncing this his name right? The two dramaturgs on the piece, but also uh, the assistant director Desiree Leverend. Her playbill notes. Oh my yeah. god, <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible. Sis, you killed it. I'm a sucker for some good playbill notes. And hers were exquisite yeah. for that production. And also shout out to the collaboration between between Janie and Caitlin Reardon, right? This was a real collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Really intentionally intercultural collaboration too, which is lovely, you know, like. Which is lovely and challenging. And challenging, that's right. And they rose to the challenge. We talked in the, the episode about Death and the King's Horseman about how to have a conversation, intercultural conversation. And I think this is a really mm -hmm. good example of that. Yeah, this play is an exquisite example of how do you tell a story about a specific culture, yeah. but have people involved in the creation process who are from different cultures. Yeah, that, that is not an easy thing to do. And I think they did a wonderful job. All the performances were, were wonderful, but like, what were some of the standout performances for you? Oh, God. I mean, I thought this was just an incredible ensemble piece. I really did. I, I can't. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, the, the four kids were splendid. I fell in love yeah. with all of them. There was such heart. There was just such an incredible amount of vulnerability, but I never felt like anybody was in trouble, if that meant, if that makes sense. As an artist, sometimes right. I, I watch a performance and I'm right. like, you're putting yourself through something you might not need to. And I never felt that here. I felt like they were just really truthful and there, and they knew why they were doing this. Yeah, they did. 
I they felt don't. like Sarah and Mike as the teachers and and Jackie as the as the reporter were just just fantastic. Like, you know, they, they have such a hard it's job. Such a hard they job. Such a hard job. It <laughs> really is. You know, I mean when you're the lone white people in a show like this, it's like, ooh, bless them. <laughs> yeah. But 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 again, I think like what was so wonderful about the characters is that they literally made your eyes roll, but they were also so sympathetic too. It's like they just don't know. Yeah, they made they, they made your eyes roll, know. but they were so sincere. Yeah, they were so you could sincere. Just tell that they they wanted to do good, and they just didn't know how. You know, it's like yeah. it's that I just wanted yeah. to help. <laughs> and and I I also I also really appreciated uh, that moment of alignment when Sarah's character. Abdafid is that <laughs> I can't, can't pronounce Welsh names. <laughs> Never been able to. But that moment when she talks about her experience of English colonization and yeah. how damaging yeah. that was to her people as Welsh folks, how she can feel the feel the affinity with the people with the indigenous folks that she works with and that she teaches, right? And but but how different her approach to it is. It was a very liberal or like neoliberal kind of stance mm-hmm. too. Absolutely, it's like I understand your pain. Mm-hmm. It's like, but do you boo? Do you really understand? <laughs> but I think in this case, yes, she kind of does, right? Because because to the English at a certain point in time, the Welsh, the the Irish were just That's as true. barbarous as everyone else until they found somebody even more different. Then they would say, okay, maybe you can like too, right, right. now that you're part of the Commonwealth, you know. Right. But but her approach to it is kind of that go along to get along, right? Like. You need to learn this so that you can be okay in this horrible context, right? As opposed to- it is very much the assimilationist argument is so strong in this piece and so conflicting and beautifully represented, yep. both by her character. Also, is it Tara or Tara? Tara. Sky, who played Beth. Right. Tara, oh my God. You talk about a character that is so difficult, yep. <laughs> so heartbreaking. Yep. We know these people who really want to to thrive and to get along in a culture or in a situation where they're being oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so a part of that process for a lot of people is diminishing or in some situations snuffing out their cultural heritage. And what a horrible situation for any human being to be in. But the way that that character struggles with that um, throughout the play is 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 beautiful and heartbreaking and really sincere. Wasatio yeah. um, Kirby, oh my God, who played Evelyn? Listen, I was Team Evelyn from day one. <laughs> <laughs> Evelyn was the realist, yep. the realist, and so grounded in culture, so grounded in the traditions of her people, mm-hmm. uh, and and so it was really kind of wonderful to have that kind of proud indigenous character being represented on stage, but also knowing that that character or people like that are central to the maintenance of cultures, especially cultures that are under any kind of oppressive regime. Yeah, that's right. The work that she did creating and shaping that character was was just like heroic in my yeah. mind. Um, yeah, and still being able to participate point. in everything. I mean, that was the other thing, too. It's like this lovely yeah. dance of like, okay, I'll do the thing you're asking me to do, and I'm going to do it how I'm going to do it. Not just that, but I'm going to make it mine. Yeah, I'm going to own this, and you don't get to tell me how that happens. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that that's right. And, and you can't tell me I've done anything counter to what you've asked me to, because I fulfilled the requirement. I understood the assignment. You don't get to tell me how that happens or what that is, because that's mine. I own that. And that was, the, it's, it's beautiful right. to see that represented, too. 
It's such a textured piece. Such a textured piece. And 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 and, and again, like even with my kind of hesitancy with the tonal aspects at the beginning, mm-hmm. it won me over. Yeah. It completely won me over. Beautiful writing, beautiful performances. What what pieces do you think are kind of in conversation with this piece? I've been thinking about that since the start of this episode, and I, I, I'm having a lot of trouble finding it. So go with me on this. Okay. <laughs> um, Dream of the Ocean. Yeah. Okay. Because again, you know, you have this group of people, this culture under this, you know, oppressive American capitalist, right out of an emancipation environment, uh-huh. and they're having to rectify their personal traumas with their cultural heritage. And in the same way that then in this piece, that healing ritual is this circle dance and Gem of the Ocean is, of course, going to the City of Bones. Mm, yeah. Gem of the Ocean and also Joe Turner's Come and Gone by Wilson are two plays that I think have this embedded ritualistic aspect to them that when a production is good, it is mind blowing and it's transformative. That's true. I think the I think the aspect that I'm not that I don't see in the Wilson is seeing people that are sort of in the middle of it as opposed to processing what has happened. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think in case of Jim though, they're still kind of in the, they're still kind of in the middle of sure. it. Sure, because it's not quite reconstruction. Yet. Sure, and so they're still kind of in the middle of it. Uh, for 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 Joe Turner, they're definitely processing trauma. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're processing drama in Joe Turner. Yeah. But I think in in Jim, there's still very much. I mean, I think that there is a sequel to 1939, right? Like the class reunion. Oh, God. Which could be right. fascinating. One of these characters went off to war to fight for the British. Yeah, probably one of the boys. But I also want to, I really want to know what happens to Beth. Mm-hmm. Even though it's an ensemble piece, I still feel that Beth is probably the protagonist, just from a structural standpoint. And I just really want to know what happens to her. You know, is she able to, like, sort of rectify this desire to be a part of this foreign culture, but also still having that longing for her indigenous culture as well? Um, so, yeah. What happens to Beth after after this, 10 years from now? I mean, I guess in some in some respects, schoolgirls, African Mean Girls play might be one. Oh, yeah. Schoolgirls is a great one. Yeah. Very different cultural context, clearly, but a similar kind of time in life, too, like that sort of coming of age period. Right. And what that means. And I guess in some ways, even to take it a little bit darker, ruined. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A little darker. (laughs) (laughs) A little way, way darker. (laughs) Much, 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 much darker. (laughs) You mean the African, the African mother courage story? Yeah, that's joyful. African mother courage story. Yeah. But but even in, in the case of, of, of Ruin by, by Lynn Nottage, I'm, I mean, the, you know, these characters, I mean, essentially, you know, most of the play takes place in in a club. Mm-hmm. So it's like a war is going on, but they're still trying to find joy and pleasure right. in any moment they can. So, yeah, I can see that. I mean, the problems, the problems are certainly a little bit different. <laughs> it's not, you know, like what yeah. the personal yeah. journeys are, are a bit more extreme in some ways. We're talking less about the loss mm-hmm. of culture and more about, you know, the ravages of war. But So 1939. Oh, man. Thank you, Johnny and, and Caitlin. Extraordinary. And, you know, they, they, they did film this one. Oh, they did. Oh, cool, cool. Great. So, if you, yeah, so if you're getting a chance to see any of the shows we talked about, you can go. 
and watch them. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I, I highly encourage watching. Johnny and Caitlin, thank you for writing a gorgeous piece and the actors and designers and dramaturgs involved in shaping both the experience of the show and the post show. I mean, top notch, y'all. Top notch. The post show was, when we saw it, was was moderated by Kelly Fran Davis uh, from St. Catharines. Yeah. She did a fantastic job. I, lo- I love listening to her and, and, and experiencing her facilitate. She just has... Yeah. Her and her daughter. Her, and her, daughter, her daughter was there, too, so that was great. Yeah, beautiful piece. Beautiful piece. Well, thanks, my friend. This has been fun. It's been fun. It's been fun. A fun experience seeing all of these shows and being able to talk about them and unpack them. But, you know, hoping that, that that Stratford Festival continues to move in this direction, showing all these really wonderfully diverse narratives. Yeah. Hope that continues in the future. Yeah, it's an amazing place in a lot of ways. And has it has the potential to really to really evolve in some fantastic directions over the next while. So optimistic generally, I think about the future of the festival, you know, I think they're, I think they're making a lot of the right moves. So hopefully it continues. Old heads house notes is produced by HC Smith limited in association with the Stratford festival created by EB Smith and Adaye moon edited by Vern good. Special thanks are due to Mike Adams, David Campbell, Yash Chabria, Anthony Cimolino, Jenna Dixon, Anita Gaffney, and the Stratford Festival. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to Old Heads on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, or most podcast services. Also, be sure to head over to our Patreon for more ways to support us and get access to perks and member-exclusive content.